Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So, welcome back to everybody. Before we begin this part of our day, I'd like to welcome you two gentlemen who are joining us here for the first time, Sequoia and John. Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. And during the social hour, if you get a chance, maybe you can say hello and chat with them a bit. Uh, it's our tradition before we hear from our speaker to, to go around the room and say our names. I'll go ahead and begin if I may. My name is Roy. My name is Henry. Sequoia. Vin. Silas. I'm Greg. I'm Robert. I'm David. Juan. My name is Mark. My name is Tom. Don. I'm Richard. My name is Hal. My name is Brian. Michael. Peter. I'm Jack. Richard. Tony. David. <coughs> John. Thank you. So our speaker today is our very own David Lewis. And let's see here. I'm, trying to, I'm a little thrown off, to be honest with you. I got here a little late, so I'm not. Let's see. What's the date? What's the date today? Here we go. <laughs> Oh, this is 2015. That's all we have. Let me read that. This is a perfect. This is actually a perfect segue into talk. Don't introduce me. (laughs) (laughs) What a relief. (laughs) Tell me about it. That really is just perfect because uh, it's the, the, the. well, I'll tell you in a minute what my topic is today, but um, one of the things that got me started on what I wanted to talk today was um, the fact that I notice every time I speak here anyplace else, I just I cringe when, when my bio is read, my Dharma bio, my little introduction. Um, and I've never been, I've never really explored that too much until recently, and then um, but it's become part of my practice, and what I've come to realize is that, that uh, every speaker's introduction that we, we write, the speaker offers it for the most part, um, is a story that we tell. And uh, it contains truths, and, it contain, and it's carefully curated. It's, uh, you know, it's like what you post on, on Facebook. Um, <laughs> we curate our lives, and, and the way we do that is we tell these stories about ourselves. And uh, the Buddha, in this tradition, uh, strongly advocated for questioning your story. So uh, I've kind of come to realize that it's okay for me to cringe when when somebody (laughs) reads an introduction. And some of that is useful information to to you to know what tradition I come out of and what, 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 um, what my practice has been. Um, but maybe it's better not to know. Simply be in the moment. 
So we all have these stories, right? People say, how are you? We have kind of a standard response. Or um, what do you do? That's another question that makes me cringe, especially now that I'm retired. People say, what do you do? I think, well, I should have a good answer for that. Um, uh, now I just say, not much. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to tell you that um, we need to get rid of stories. Because we can't. We love stories, right? You probably prefer speakers, as I do, that can tell a good story. And a, a good story is a, a, a great way to transmit the Dharma, to talk about um, um, spiritual matters. But when we're talking about our own stories, uh, I think it's a really useful thing to question. Um, why am I emphasizing this and not that? So stories are great, movies, books, plays. But it's, um, our own stories are curated, as I said. They're fabricated. Um, and for those of you that are, are, are new or might not know this, is one of the things that I get asked uh, to do at uh, GBF is to kind of introduce some uh, core Buddhist concepts. Very often I talk about the lists, Four Noble Truths, or Evil Path. Uh, but today is, I'm going to toss some terminology at you. And, you know, if it's confusing, just ask questions. Uh, the, the reason I like to use, uh, to, to explore Pali words, Pali being the language that's closest to what the Buddha spoke in, in the Buddha's own time, the reason I like Pali words is because sometimes the concepts that they suggest um, are much broader and, and, and deeper at the same time than we have in English. Sometimes it takes five English uh, terms to, to um, define a Pali term. So when I say that um, our stories are fabricated or made up or constructed, um, fabrication is, is, um, is a term that's very often used in, in Buddhism to describe the, the formation of sankharas. And sankharas are our life patterns, our habits of mind, um, um, which are all conditioned. Our way of relating to the world or our self-identity is, is conditioned. So it's a made-up thing. And it's a, it's, so this idea of fabrication, made-up things, is a really core concept in Buddhism because, indeed, our very sense of self is a made-up thing. So that's what I want to kind of explore today, is this, this idea of our identity, our self, um, um, being a made-up thing, a constructed thing. So um, fabrication is, is one, one core concept. And another uh, core concept is the Pali word of bhava. Bhava, B-H-A-V-A. Bhava means becoming in Buddhism, in, in the Pali language. And um, bhava is how we fabricate, how we become ourselves. So every thought, every word, every action we take, um, all of which is karma, karma being action, is bhava. It's how we make ourselves, we construct ourselves. Um, we're addicted to that, the process of bhava. We do it so automatically, we don't see it happening. But um, Bhava combined with the word tana. Tana is the word for craving. And tana is the second noble truth, right? Craving. 
is the cause of suffering. So, bhavatana is craving for becoming. And that's what we do. We're always... Um, in fact, if, when I pay attention, I, I'm not on social media a lot, but I have, I'm on, I have a Facebook account. When I pay attention to what's going through my mind and what my motivation and my attention are, you know, intentions are, when I get on Facebook, it's, it's mostly bhavatana. It's either um, putting forward a, 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 a picture of myself or wanting to look good. Um, uh, even if you're not talking about yourself on Facebook, um, <laughs> if you're liking other people's things, that's bhava. That's becoming. Are you your likes? So mm -hmm. it's really useful as a meditative process to pay attention to um, how you feel and what your motivation is when you're doing social media. We tend to emphasize the good. We emphasize what we want people to see about ourselves. So it's no wonder that sometimes we get um, baffled and lose our sense of ourself uh, because so much of it's made up. So I think it's a, a skillful thing to um, feel a little confused and vulnerable. Baba Tana, craving for becoming, craving to become something. Um, the Buddha said it's, it's of the things that the Buddha has a list called Upadana. The list is things to let go of, things that are useful to let, to let go of if you want to wake up. Bhavatana, this becoming, this sense of self, is, is the hardest thing to give up. But essential. And it can be done. And I just want to uh, toss in, because I find it really interesting, that, uh, that Bhavatana, craving to become, has an opposite. And that's called Vibhava. And that's craving not to become, craving not to be. Um, and I'm not going to talk about it much, but it's, it's um, I find it to be a very comforting principle because vibhavatana, craving not to be, can be anything from uh, simple boredom. Maybe somebody's sitting here thinking, gee, when's this talk going to be over? I want to go out and get lunch. That's vibhavatana. Uh, boredom, frustration, not wanting to be uh, where I am, not wanting to be what I'm doing. We've probably experienced it at work quite a bit. Um, so Vibhavatana could be anything from that, from boredom and frustration, to the, the impulse to suicide. The whole range of not wanting to be um, in this life, in this body, in, in this world, or not wanting to be myself, wanting to be something else. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting in our culture that um, I had a great talk with a 20-something neighbor of mine uh, about this because she had a um, had some experiences with friends that were suicidal in high school when she was in high school and I said you know well in in Buddhism that's um, that's really quite a natural thing most people don't act on it but there's this whole range of, of not wanting to be in the world and when we're really unhappy it's not, it's not as taboo in Buddhism as it is in Western culture to think, I just don't want to be part of this anymore. That's Vibhavatana. It can be kind of comforting. Like, oh, that's just Vibhavatana. 
It's another conditioned thing that arises and passes away. It's not me or mine. Having some vibhavatana does not mean that you're a suicidal person. So, getting back to bhava, becoming, this process that we do in every moment of every day, of feeding our ego and becoming somebody and becoming um, whatever our idea of ourselves are. Collectively, all of that bhava, all of that becoming, becomes, uh, here's another Pali term, becomes sakaya diddy. Sakaya Diddy is personality view. It's what you think of yourself. I'm a good person, I'm a good partner, I'm a reliable worker, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not very smart, Sakaya Diddy. Um, I can't do that. Um, I've, I've failed as a family member. It's all, it's all personality view, it's our idea of ourselves which we take very seriously. We believe it. The Buddha would say, don't believe that either. Sakaya Diddy is a made-up thing. Um, to be questioned. It's a question of authority. There's a <clears throat> bumper sticker. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But meditators like it. says, don't believe everything you think. Um, and that's really a great practice. And, and, and uh, this tradition. Don't believe everything you think. So um, it all begins with thoughts, and that's the uh, third foundation of mindfulness. Um, I've talked here before about the four foundations of mindfulness. And the, the first foundation of mindfulness, a foundation of mindfulness is where you rest your awareness when you're meditating or even in just everyday life. But it's the chosen meditation object or where you rest your awareness. So the first foundation of mindfulness, the most fundamental that we can learn and do, if we, if we learn nothing else about meditation, we should learn the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the body. So very often people start their meditation, and some people have their entire life practice is simply following the breath, which is an aspect of the body. The second foundation of mindfulness is... Um, is is called Vedana, which is uh, basically every experience we have, we either find pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Every thought, every experience, every sight, every sound, every uh, sense inf piece of information we get, um, we respond to that. It's, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's another really interesting thing to explore in meditation is your um, tendency to um, have these, what we call feeling tones. Oh, that's pleasant. That's unpleasant. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness. The first foundation is the, our body, the, the thing that is most in the present moment in our experience. Our body anchors us, anchors us like a ship, anchors us in the present moment, in the here and now. Our second foundation of mindfulness is um, vagueness, or these feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's our response to our experience of the world. Second foundation is our response. The third foundation is uh, working with thoughts and emotions. And you don't hear about this quite so often in instructions because it gets, starts to get a little complicated, right? When you're, uh, say, when you're meditating, doing formal meditation, um, for the most part, we kind of let, we try, we are usually encouraged to let our thoughts be. 
let them pass by like a mini card train. Um, but you can, uh, there are practices uh, for working the thoughts. And um, meditation, as you've heard many times, you don't push thoughts away because it's pretty much impossible to do, as you probably noticed in your, in your set this morning. Thoughts arise all by themselves. So we're not about pushing thoughts away. Uh, we're about noticing them arising and passing away. But you might uh, sometimes choose to do a little exploration about thoughts. Um, there's a lot of different ways of doing that. Noticing the repetitive nature of certain thoughts, noticing what you tend, what tends to come up most often, in which case you can label them. That's memories, 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 or there's something on your plate that you're really worried about in the future that you're, you might be doing a lot of planning, planning, planning. Um, but one way that I've been working with my thoughts is uh, lately is uh, around this idea of, of uh, becoming. And uh, what I've been doing is simply asking myself, whenever I notice, whenever a thought really demands my attention, um, it calls to me, the first question I ask is, is it true? Is that true? And it's just remarkable to me how many of them are not true. doesn't necessarily mean it's a lie. It might be a fantasy or a story or a wishful thinking or uh, wondering what somebody else is thinking. I mean, that's a great, great example. So if you know, you're, you're having some kind of interaction with someone and you're wondering what they're thinking, um, no matter what you wonder, it's probably not true. It's probably not their experience. You can't know. So um, without feeding thoughts, just kind of what we do in everyday life, feeding and encouraging our, our thinking process and following, without feeding or following thoughts, uh, we can just notice their nature. And we can always ask that question, like, is that true? Is that true? And it's a, I find it a wonderful way to simplify my experience, because as soon as I realize that something's not true, or something's not important or current, it might be a fantasy or daydream, it's very easy to let go of. Makes makes it a lot easier for me to let go of those thoughts. You realize their empty nature, the conditioned nature of thoughts. So, um, what I'm working around here is, um, and I'm just kind of dancing around it, is the Buddhist concept of anatta, which is not self. And the Buddha taught that there's three characteristics uh, to reality, three characteristics of, of all of our experience. One is um, dukkha, that is um, our, our experience is frequently unsatisfactory. Um, the second is that it's, uh, it's anicca, which is impermanence. Our, everything changes, our body changes, our mind changes, our intentions change. Um, and the third is anatta, which is this concept of, of not-self. And um, dukkha and uh, dissatisfaction and impermanence are, are two concepts that we can intellectually understand. 
better to understand through your experience of meditation and direct experience, but we can intellectually understand. Anatta, I found to be, I've always found to be a really difficult concept to wrap your mind around intellectually. But it works in practice, and the way I work with anatta, this idea of not-self, and the Buddha, by the way, never said there is no self. The Buddha said, show me what the self is. And then he gave some brilliant talks about um, about how what makes up our, our sense of self, our deluded sense of self. He basically took, takes apart all the components of self to show that there's not a core self. But the way I like to approach it is to, is to think about this idea of bhava, of how we create a self all the time. So if we can see the process of bhava, of becoming, happening in our daily life, happening in our minds, if you see that process happening, then we, we see that it's a conditioned thing. So we're, we already know that our bodies change, right? Our cells turn over every day, and we get older, and you know, we know our bodies change. When we meditate, we know that our minds change. We sit and watch that process. If it's if it's if whatever's going on in our mental experience, uh, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, easy, or difficult, it changes. Right? That's one universal thing in our we notice in meditation. So um, that's how I approach uh, anatta: is by looking at how we construct ourselves and calling that into question. The construction won't stop, but you can start making choices and start seeing the emptiness, the conditioned nature of it. So, um, I said earlier that when, when, now that I'm retired, I basically do this. When people ask me, what do you do? Uh, I, I say, not much. I'm not just being uh, funny, it's, uh, I'm really not doing a whole lot in my life. And uh, that's a preference. And I realize it makes me pretty boring. I don't have a whole lot to say about um, what's going on in my life. But the interesting thing, and, and this I got from one of my teachers, is who, who, he's uh, said, yeah, it's, we, we become pretty boring when we practice, because uh, we're letting go of all these interesting aspects of ourselves. Uh, mm-hmm. But this teacher of mine said, the more boring I become uh, to other people, the more interesting I am to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. You start doing this practice of paying attention to how you are constructing yourself and deconstructing yourself and how you are in the world. And, and the things that like love and compassion that arise out of that, letting go of this tight sense of, of contained self, um, is fascinating. It's, it's really quite an interesting practice. Uh, so I'll give you an example. I had a little insight into this process, looking at my stories. I've always, um, I don't know about always, but last many years I've been um, carrying this story about myself. But, um, and it's a self-belief also, so it's also Sakaya it's personality view, but it's mostly a story about myself, that um, I'm a really lucky guy. Um, 
I survived the AIDS epidemic, despite the fact that I have AIDS. And uh, I had, I've had two wonderful partners, both of whom I lost over the years, um, and a lot of love in my life. And I've been financially secure. Um, and right now I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. This boring life that I'm, I'm leading is, is exactly what I want to, want to be doing. Um, and I don't know many people that can say that. And so I count myself to be a really lucky fellow. So this, uh, the Chronicle did a, uh, a short documentary and a story called Last Men Standing. I mean, any of you know about that? Um, about people that survived the AIDS epidemic. People like me, mostly older guys that survived the AIDS epidemic. Um, it's kind of interesting because a lot of us kind of became introverts and disappeared into our apartments and um, it's a, a series of interviews with guys my age uh, was was pretty interesting and it really pushed some of my buttons and uh, hearing people talk about losing partners and losing friends and surviving the epidemic um, and being left behind this real sense of being the last man standing of being left um, meaning there's been an awful lot of loss in some of our lives, uh, made me realize that, uh, well, that's me too. I've had a lot of loss. Same story. Lived through the epidemic. Very scary, living with life-threatening disease. Um, had two wonderful partners who died. Um, so it's a whole other story. And one of the guys, uh, it's the opposite side of my story about being a lucky guy, is I'm an un unlucky guy. And one of the, the fellows that um, was uh, interviewed in this documentary gave the title to the documentary by saying, uh, I'm the luckiest unlucky person in the world. No one wants to be left the last man standing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really spoke to me. I thought, okay, so... Both of those stories are true. I'm the luckiest, unlucky person in the world. So I can view my, my life experience the past 25 years as being lucky or unlucky, but they're both true and they're both not true. So it was an interesting wake-up call uh, for me. As I saw some of my denial. I saw the nature of my story as being not quite true or the way I wanted to color the world to myself as well as other people. So uh, we notice these things in meditation practice. If you meditate and you <clears throat> question your thoughts, and you see stories coming up over and over again, and you're, if you're able to question them, uh, sometimes you get at the truth of things. And the truth might be a lot simpler and sometimes a lot more pleasant than what our stories are. The other thing that meditation can be, and it certainly is for me, I just love this practice. The other thing it can be is a refuge from the stories. We can take a break from stories. Or we just let them reel away in our mind without taking them seriously and without following them and realize that uh, there's peace in sitting. We don't have to be running stories. We don't have to have a narrative going. 
who simply pay attention to the raw material of our direct experience in the here and now. And that frees us from our narratives, at least temporarily. Uh, and that feels pretty good. Before we weave our experience into a story, our direct experience is simply sensory awareness of passing phenomena, sights, sounds, tastes, uh, and thoughts arising, random thoughts arising. And those thoughts don't have to be made into anything. Um, and the other things we'll notice when we're not telling ourselves stories, we're not daydreaming and fantasizing and telling stories in our experience, one thing we'll notice is qualities of compassion and love. <coughs> so our stories about ourselves might, might be lacking in love. I could say, you know, I've, I've lost two dear, dearly loved partners that I thought I'd be with forever, and I'm not in a relationship now. So I could say, I, I could tell a story that <coughs> love is missing in my life. But that's not really true, because uh, I'm actually feeling a lot of love right now for uh, men in this room. Uh, love arises in our experience, whether there's an object uh, there to receive it or not. We tend to think of love as something that comes from somebody else and something we get. Love is something we produce. I have a, another teacher that we were talking about this once, said uh, you could find love in a puddle of water. You know how to look for it. That's true. The world's full of love, mostly dependent on how, how we generate it ourselves. So if there's love missing in your life, generate some. James Baldwin said, love takes off masks that we fear we cannot live without and know that we cannot live within. So, the antidote to these masks, these stories we tell that separate us from other people uh, is love and compassion. Uh, and that's not so much an idea or a story in itself, but it's, uh, it's uh, what the Buddha called a Brahma Vihara, one of the divine states that we can cultivate in meditation practice. Metta, uh, being love or loving kindness or unconditional friendliness is uh, the fundamental core of Brahma Vihara. So my intention was, um, you know, I had two intentions, but I think because we're a small group, um, I'd like to open it up for discussion. Uh, but I, I, I found three quotes that I couldn't quite fit into any part of uh, this talk, so I just left them at the end. I'm <laughs> going to share some quotes with you. All of them for, are from the Zen, Zen tradition, which is not the tradition I um, practice in, but I have enormous admiration for it. Pertinent to this subject. The practice of Zen is to forget the self in the act of uniting with something. The breath, a koan, the song of a thrush. Concern about me and mine disappear. 
So just the act of being with your direct experience, the song of a, of a thrush, can let, help us to forget ourselves. So Master Dogen said, you should cease from practice based on intellectual understanding. You should cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech, and learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. Um, that's a new quote to me, and I really love it. I really love the idea that this practice is not about getting something. It's not about moving forward, but it's a backward step. Learn the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate yourself. And finally, Dogen's most famous quote that I'm sure you've all heard many times, but it's just um, indispensable. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things, including the song of the thrush or your breath. So, um, thank you for your kind attention. And uh, I tossed out a lot of uh, ideas and concepts that I may have completely confused you, but now's the chance to try to untangle it. Yeah. Have a question or a comment? Please. You use the term condition, and as you know, we had conditioned father, whatever. Could you drill down on that? I have never drilled down on that word. It comes up all the time. It does come up all the time. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, basically, the Buddha taught that everything in our experience is conditioned. Uh, meaning everything is dependent on something else. Um, we're dependent on, uh, our, our existence is dependent on our parents. Our parents' existence was good, dependent on their parents. Um, our education, our ideas, our, our sense of self is conditioned based on what our teachers taught us and um, what we got from our culture and our race and our, our class that we grew up in. So everything about us is um, is not some independent thing that's that, that's unique only to myself. Um, we're conditioned. We're we're made up of, of many 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 different influences and, and factors, um, and that's true for everything in the universe. It's true for every tree, every rock, everything. Everything is conditioned. So um, it's not the way we're. Um, conditioned to think about <laughs> things existing in the world. But when we realize that, that, that um, a rabbit or a rock or an iris is, is just as dependent on, on birth and death, and subject to birth and death as I am, we start breaking down this strong sense of self that, that says that, that I'm a unique, special um, individual that's not like anybody else. I'm just another conditioned thing, and I'm, I'm constantly changing. So, one of the that can feel you that, that can make us feel very unmoored um, and vulnerable sometimes, but it can also open up a, a, a universe of possibility. Is I can be anything. I'm changing anyway. I can change intentionally. Does that help? It does. Yeah. Uh, to follow up on that, David, 
it sounds like you're talking about cause and effect somewhat when you talk about being conditioned. For some reason, I've always gotten the idea, it's never been said, but I've read into it that being conditioned was bad and that we should somehow try to be unconditioned. Is But you said there is nothing that is unconditioned, right? Yeah, well, okay, I was wrong. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of things that are unconditioned. One is enlightenment which is a whole other talk. We probably shouldn't go there. <laughs> the other thing that's unconditioned, though, that you can experience right now is awareness. Your awareness. So I can suggest that you um, close your eyes and stop seeing for a moment. Or um, stop thinking. We can even close out thoughts for a moment. But one thing that you can't do is stop being aware. Give it a try. <laughs> try not being aware. Can't. So um, awareness is really interesting, and awareness can be—it's uh, it's unconditioned. It doesn't depend on any given thing. So our awareness is like kind of like a spotlight that moves around, seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling. But the awareness remains pure. It doesn't take on the flavor of uh, what it's experiencing. So, for instance, it's said that awareness of anger is not angry. It's just awareness of anger. Awareness of love is not love. Awareness of whatever. Awareness is, is unconditioned. So there are a couple of unconditioned things. And... and you do hear a lot of talk in Buddhism about placing great value on the unconditioned. But the great value we're placing is basically on awareness and, um, and enlightenment, awakening, the ability to awaken from suffering. And awareness, I might add, is a, is a really interesting subject, uh, uh, um, object of meditation. Try it sometime meditating instead of just instead of placing your um, your awareness instead of noticing the, all the objects of awareness. Notice awareness itself. You can spend a lot of time just meditating on awareness. Um, I like to do experiments, um, and I try. I've been doing this experiment since January. I used to be on Facebook. I don't share a lot of personal things on Facebook, but I share some things like photography or things like that. But I follow, I don't know, I might have 150, 175 people, and they're like everyone from my you know, English teacher in high school <laughs> to my you know, um, godson to, I mean, it's just this really motley group of people. Um, but I found it wasn't very satisfying because there are these really surfacey narratives. I find out, oh, go Hoosiers, or <laughs> I find out, you know, these bits and pieces of information. And I just, I would get on there and I might spend a couple of hours and get lost. And then afterwards I'm thinking, well, I have these bits of information that aren't very helpful. 
And you said some things that were really helpful because I, what I found is that by not, I think I've, I've checked Facebook maybe twice, you know, uh, since January. And the two times I checked it, I was like, oh, I don't really think I needed to check it. It was like these surfacey kind of um, narratives. The people that I'm closest with, um, I'm, you know, reaching out to. And it, it felt like the compassion part just sort of wasn't there. And now that I'm not spending time in these kind of narratives that are kind of surfacy, it's for me opened up a lot more, you know, kind of compassion. Um, and so when you said that, it just really, I, I don't know if I could have verbalized the process the way you put it, and it, it was sort of true. So thank you. Yeah, it's a that's a great practice that you're doing, and it's what I suggested people to do. It's it's a simple mindfulness practice: is pay attention to how you feel when you're on Facebook or when you're another place that that practice is useful is reading the newspaper, whether you read it online or you know, however you get your news. Is you know, do, do I want to start the morning being furious? <laughs> Probably not. But one response is is that um, any pretty much any story in the news can be met with compassion. It's just a different way of um, responding to the news. Or, as you suggested, turn it off altogether. <laughs> Smell the flowers. <laughs> David, you know I've spent a lot of time on Facebook the last couple of years, and. Um, I'm sort of estranged from my family, and part of what has happened is I've gotten back in touch with a lot of my family. And I'm a sort of an old guy now, and um, I've had a lot of different groups that I've met, and I've, had, I've collected a lot of friends on Facebook. But one thing that I've made a practice of is destroying my story on Facebook. And I sort of make a point of destroying my story, and I, I how, do, how do you do I, that? Yeah. What? How do you do that? I say contradictory things, <laughs> <laughs> and I say things that are outrageous <laughs> and that are actually true. <laughs> like uh, I, I, I really value the uh, uh, the concept of irony, the value, the concept of. Uh, being contradictory for you know, and uh, I find it to be quite a lot of fun, and um, I f I feel like that really is a true reflection of who I am. Yeah. Sounds like performance art. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like performance art. That could be. I don't know. But, it doesn't be in a positive way. It's um, because uh, one thing one thing that I've noticed about my story is anytime I say anything. It's a great way to start out, but there's always a phrase that I like to use after I say anything, and it's, on the other hand. <laughs> great. There's a lot of you know, profound Buddhist teachers, like Tibetan um, lamas and, and the Japanese roshis that are um, famous for saying, I don't know, or somebody will say something completely ridiculous, and they'll say, well, you might be right. <laughs> Somebody? Thank you. Um, so I'm curious, this um, <clears throat> idea of the unconditioned, or you know, wanting to get away from the conditioned and all that, how does that relate to what you described earlier, the desire for non-existence? 
Because it seems like that would be, you know, if you're really tired of a condition or you're trying to pull away from that, the ultimate escape from it is non-existence. So do you see... I, no, I wouldn't say so. Because <laughs> desire for non-existence is first and foremost desire. It's craving. And that's, craving is heavily conditioned. Um, that's considered a, a defilement. <laughs> so whether we're craving existence or non-existence, becoming or unbecoming, um, we're trying to be we're trying to be something that, that we're not. We're, we're craving something that doesn't exist. Either we either want to become something else or we want to unbecome something. So the the the, the crucial word is craving there. Um, when we're talking about unconditioned, uh, craving is not operating. Karma is not even operating in, in, um, in, in the unconditioned. So um, craving for enlightenment is generally not considered a good thing to, to have. <laughs> it's probably the one thing that will keep you away from awakening. It's craving for it. So it's only when we recognize the universal experience of our conditioning. The conditioning is always happening, not any more than we try to push away suffering in our lives. There's always going to be dissatisfaction. It's just it's the human nature to have dissatisfaction and to have impermanence. Um, the, when, as soon as we can accept that, those factors of, of, of reality, that, that life's difficult and that it's impermanent and that there's no um, solid sense of self, um, then we can experience some awakening, but it's about—it's not about getting something; it's about letting go of something. Well, so I can see how the desire for non-existence is conditioned, and so you know it sort of like flies in the face of wanting to be non-conditioned. But the actual attainment of non-existence, like once you're there, once awareness is no longer happening, that would be the ultimate escape from the condition, wouldn't it? Would it not? Yeah. I mean, the seeking of it, the chasing of it, is conditioned. Right. But the actual attainment of it is... A attainment of, of awakening is, yes, is unconditioned. Right. Um, but, but chasing after Vipavatana, um, the, the, the quest for non-being, um, say if you're suicidal, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm feeling my life is just... Um, Insufferable, and I, I, I just, I just want to die and make it all easier. Um, does not take you to nirvana. That's that's coming out of um, clinging and craving and um, dissatisfaction. So there's basically two ways out of the conditions: it's awakening or non-existence. Sorry, it's there's two ways to escape the condition, and that is awakening. Because you said that's yeah. that is non-conditioned or non-existence. I mean, is that I I don't know quite what you mean by non-existence. If you if you commit suicide and you're dead, mm -hmm. um, you're still becoming. You're still um, for one thing, your body turns into something else, worm food. Uh, <laughs> and um, whether you believe in uh, other lives or not, the Buddha talked about that. Is is. Um, ending your life that way is you're likely to come back as a cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> Not recommended. 
would you say that awareness is the same thing as consciousness? That's always a really interesting question. Um, and you'll get different answers from different people about that, but the way I understand it, and it might be wrong, so feel free to contradict me, the way I understand it is that um, awareness is unconditioned in the way that I described it. You can't turn it off, you can't change it. Consciousness is conditioned because consciousness is dependent on a subject and an object. So um, consciousness of, 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 of this watch requires me to have uh, eyes and a hand to, to hold up this watch and it requires the watch to be there and then my mind, someplace in my consciousness of my mind, makes the connection that I know what this is. This is a watch. Uh, and that's consciousness. So consciousness requires a subject and an object. So it comes and goes and comes and goes depending on what you're paying attention to. And if you're um, sitting there listening to me talk and paying attention and something else is going on in the other room, even though that something else is actually going on, you're not conscious of it because your consciousness is fixed on, on me, on an object. So, but awareness is, um, you can't turn it off. It doesn't change. It just shifts from one place to another. Is that totally confusing? Uh, no, uh, it just, your talk made me reflect on what I have felt or suspected about the nature of the universe, and I've come down to a feeling that it's basically pure consciousness, and that it has manifested all these states of becoming and being, just purely out of entertainment for itself. You know. That's just my personal um, Dogen, the great Zen master, agreed with you. Um, but that's not universal in, in Buddhism. I, I ran across a really good quote the other day, and I didn't bring it with me, unfortunately, but let's see if I can remember. It's pertinent to this. It's, somebody said that the mind, like everything else, is conditioned. But unlike everything else, it's luminous. And that luminous is awareness. So that's what's unique about the mind, even though it's conditioned like everything else. And then it went on to, the person that was talking went on to quote Dogen and saying, but Dogen believed that everything is mind. I've encountered that a lot in Zen, uh, everything is mind, and I thought, mind with a capital M. Yeah. And so that's in yeah. mind. It's, it's interesting, but I'm not an authority. <laughs> Okay, we have time for one more. Okay. Do you know, or has anyone written about uh, Zen masters or something who became, who developed Alzheimer's? Um, where one's awareness is presumably affected by mental loss, but maybe they had some kinds of insights or something as they became or could sense that something was happening to them. There, there are such studies, and they suggest that having a lifetime meditation practice, or starting now, 
having a meditation practice is a really great thing to have when you develop dementia or Alzheimer's. My favorite story about it is, and I can't remember, I always forget who this is about, but there was a famous teacher, Buddhist teacher in some tradition, who was developing Alzheimer's, and his students and um, people that came to hear him talk knew that. He was known for that, and it was a very slow decline. And he uh, was doing a teacher training, teaching a bunch of Buddhist teachers um, a number of years ago. And so the room was full of dedicated practitioners and really advanced teachers. And this guy got up in front of the room and uh, to give his talk, as he does every year at the teacher training conference. And he stood there for 10 minutes, just staring out into the crowd. And then he said, I have no idea who any of you are. And I don't know why I'm here. And then he went on to say, but you look like a really nice group of people. And I'm getting a good vibe. And it's pretty pleasant being out here. And um, I'm rather enjoying myself. And I'm just thinking how great it is to be surrounded by loving people. He gave a whole Dharma talk that was his direct experience of of being on a platform talking to a bunch of people that he didn't, didn't know. And a number of different people that were in the audience have said that that's the best Dharma talk they ever heard from anybody. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, it also, I, I also figure if I ever get really stuck in a Dharma talk, forget what I was going to talk about, I could just do that. <laughs> it's called Vipassana Out Loud. So, and on that. Appreciate it. And talk's always so great. Um, and I'm glad that this worked out today. <laughs> um, small and, blessings. And I, it's, it's, it's definitely a small blessing, and it's a blessing for myself because in my own story, I know I'm always prepared and I always have it together, or whatever. And I can't even tell you who next week's speaker is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, how do you have Well, just come next week, it should be good. <laughs> a loving group and a loving teacher. That's right. <laughs> um, Let's see. Okay. <laughs> so um, Donna is the Pali word for getting, and um, it's a very important part of our, of our day here because it helps to pay for this beautiful space that we all share every Sunday and to pay for our speakers and do the um, Saturday dinners. <coughs> what are they called again? Uh, the Larkin Street dinners, all of it. So um, the suggested donation is 7 to $10, but... Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated. And, uh, okay, so you'll come next week. See, you'll be surprised. And uh, who, who's... I'll be coming around with the Donna Bowl. Excellent. And there are some healthful, uh, mostly healthful snacks out there. I apologize. I thought I was doing a little treat with getting animal crackers, and I opened them, and they were crumbly. So we have crumbly at <laughs> Are there any other announcements today? Anybody want to share? No? Okay, let's go ahead and stand for the dedication of merit, please. I'm just covering the guy. You want to be in front of By the power and the truth of this practice, 
May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment, too much aversion, believing in the equality of all things. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.